About 57 AD, in 57 AD, Paul was in Corinth. And while he was there, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Now, he wrote the letter for a couple of reasons. One is he wanted uh, to gain the support of the church in Rome as he desired to travel to Spain to preach the gospel there. Second reason was that he heard some things going on in the church that were a little concerning and that there was tension in the church between Jewish believers and, and Gentile believers about how people were saved. Now, the subject today is not Romans. It's Psalm 19, but we'll be in Romans a lot. But I think as Paul was writing the letter to the Romans, I, I got a feeling that he might have been studying or meditating on Psalm 19. Psalm 19 speaks about God's creation. Paul, uh, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and Paul talks about the creation. Psalm 19 speaks about the Mosaic law, and David said that the law of the Lord is perfect, and Paul speaks at length about the law in Romans. And I do see the influence of Psalm 19 in Romans. So I hope we'll see that today as well. There's a philosopher, a German philosopher, by the name of Immanuel Kant. Uh, he was around in the late 18th century, and he, it is said that he's the father of modern, modern philosophy. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know much about philosophy. And I don't think he was a believer, but he said something interesting in his book, Critique of Practical Reason. He said, two things fill the mind. With ever-increasing wonder and awe, the more often and the more intensely the mind of thought is drawn to them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Now, he didn't say that about Psalm 19, but that captures much of what Psalm 19 is about. The heavens declare the glory of God and the law of the Lord is perfect. There's another philosopher, I think one that we're more familiar with, and certainly a believer. His name is C.S. Lewis. And in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, he said this, I take this to be one of the greatest poems in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. With that, let's read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day he pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the, law of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall, be I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, David sees two things around him that speak of you. One is the heavens and one is your law, your word. 
And I pray for, Lord, that this morning that you might open your, our hearts to your word, that you might open our hearts to see you a little better, to gain a little bit more understanding of who you are and understand how much you care for us and love us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When many students of the scriptures read Psalm 19, they often see two things right away. First thing is that they notice an abrupt change between verses 6 and 7. In verses 1 through 6, David is speaking about the work of God in creation. He talks about the heavens, and specifically the sun. And then without warning or transition, verse 7, through the rest of the psalm, David extols the law of the Lord. Why such an abrupt change? Well, some suggest that Psalm 19 was originally two different psalms, and that somebody put them together. And then some suggest that the sudden change invalidates the psalm altogether as authentic. However, most of the religions in the ancient Near East during David's time associated the sun, actually the sun god, with law and justice. This gives a reason for David to write the psalm as he did, as a polemic against the idea that the sun was a god. Yahweh created and controls the heaven. Yahweh gave the law. He is the origin of the heavens, of law and of justice. The Lord is the only God, and he created everything. The second thing most students of the scriptures notice is that this psalm is a self-disclosure of God. The first part of the psalm is God's self-disclosure and what we call general revelation. General revelation is the evidence of God in creation. General revelation is available to everybody just by observing. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, where he says that it is in the creation where God's invisible attributes are seen. And then there's special revelation. This is where God reveals himself to humans by speaking. Where as much can be understood about God from creation, it is limited. Creation doesn't say much about God's plan or about his desire for human beings. Special revelation is where God tells humans who he is and what he desires. And that comes through God's word. For David, it came through the law. Ultimately, it comes through Jesus Christ, who the writer of Hebrews says is the exact representation of God. Jesus himself said, if you had seen him, you have seen the Father. For David, God specially reveals himself through the law of the Lord. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is David's main point in the first part of the psalm. The declaration David is talking about is ongoing. It's not a one-time event. As long as the heavens are above, they will tell of God's glory and of his creation and of his handiwork. And no matter how a person perceives the heavens, they speak of God and his glory, specifically his power and majesty. There's no ambiguity about that. You might ignore it or you might dismiss it. A lot of people do but they still tell of God's glory. I expect that there's not a single person who has gazed at the heavens and at some point, perhaps even despite themselves, have experienced some awe and wonder at the heavens and at what they see. The second line of verse 1 expands on the idea the Hebrew word for sky is found nine times in Genesis 1. It's translated firmament or expanse. The heavens are God's canvas that everyone can look at and consider and think about. And it doesn't cost anything to look at it. There is something that's going on right now. Actually, it's going on in Rochester that does cost some money. 
back at last October, Nancy and I went to Buffalo to see this. It's, uh, it's an exhibition called Beyond Van Gogh, which is a very visual experience of about 300 of Van Gogh's paintings that are projected on the walls and the floors and on structures in the middle of this very large room. The images are constantly moving. The paintings are projected in very high quality, they say using 4 trillion pixels, and it is quite stunning. The projections are beautiful. I've got a couple here. We can put the first one up. There it is. And, and this picture doesn't do justice, but it at least gives you an idea. It's quite beautiful. You can go ahead and do the second one. There it is. Good. And the, and the projections, of course, are everywhere, so they cover you as well as you're standing in the room. But you can see the creativity of this artist, Vincent van Gogh. He's been dead 130 years, but it's still there. You can still see it. David draws our attention to the creation before us, not projected, but real. We can touch, we can smell, we can feel, and see so much of God's creation around us. And like David, for many, the most stunning part is the heavens. How can anyone look up and not ask, who made that? The heavens are all about God's handiwork, all of which he brought into existence with the word, let there be. And it was. David is quite taken with the heavens of God's creation. And while they don't reveal a great deal about God's moral qualities, attributes like his justice or his mercy, his love, or even his grace, they do testify about his greatness and power. And a few other things. Psalm 56. Psalm 56. <laughs> the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. They testify that God is judge and they're just and righteous. Psalm 8.1, they testified about his majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory above the heavens. That's actually the beginning of a song that I thought about trying to sing, but I thought better of that. And then in Romans 1.20, the heavens testify about his divine nature and eternal power. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Felon by the name of Theodore of Seer, a bishop who ministered in the first half of the 5th century, said this. He said, if you observe a most mighty and magnificent building, you admire the builder. If you see a skillfully and beautifully designed ship, you think of the shipwright. And at the sight of a painting, the painter comes to mind. Much more, to be sure, he says, does the sight of creation lead to the viewers, to the creator? Psalm 19, 2 through 4. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun. David says the day and the night speak. He says it's a voluminous speech, and it reveals, that is, it tells humans knowledge. The knowledge the heavens give, the knowledge that creation gives, is deep and varied. Look at all we learned over even the last century about creation. For example, we've learned so much that we have mapped the human genome. I'm not a scientist. I wouldn't know how to uh, even begin to, to look at that or think about that. But it, that has got to be amazing for the people who have done that. They, we know every strand of DNA and what every gene does, and it's amazing. But the most important knowledge that heaven tells, heavens tell is about God. 
And David says it's a silent speech. Verse 3 in the NIV says it, I think, pretty well. It says they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. The heavens do not speak in an audible way, but they have much to say about God. But even without audible speech, the heavens speak loudly, according to David. No one can escape the revelation of God in the heavens. And then David seems to focus then on the sun. Psalm 19, verses 4 through 6. We'll start at the end of verse 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. At the end of verse 4, David chooses to focus on the sun. He compares the sun to a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and to a strong man who runs, both full of joy. David imagines the sun not just going up and down each day, but he sees it full of joy, and he sees joy in it. There's a little town in Southern California uh, called Carlsbad. Actually, it's called Carlsbad by the sea, which is appropriate because it's by the sea. It's uh, by the, right on the Pacific Ocean. And there's a little hotel in Carlsbad. It's called the Beach Terrace Inn. And Nancy and I have stayed there a few times, little getaways that we had an opportunity to do. Uh, and it was literally on the beach. We fortunately we were fortunate to get a room that one of the rooms that were on the beach. And when I say on the beach, I mean you open a sliding glass door, you step on a small deck, and then you step into the sand. And then the water's about thirty feet away. It's really quite cool. I know guys aren't supposed to think like this, but it was quite cool to have the the sliding glass door open for a little bit during the night, and you could hear the the waves and the wind lap up, and it's, it's, it was quite cool. But I'm a guy. I don't think about those things. <laughs> well, one day while we were there, we decided to watch the sunset, and it was beautiful. Here's a picture of it that we took. Yeah. <laughs> me, me too. Uh, yeah, if you could look really close at the picture, you'd see the sun is quite literally on the edge of the horizon, just starting to go down. And there's the yellows, and then there's that kind of a reddish pink, and then a purple, and then you get into the blues, and then you have the colors on the water. If you smiled at that, you get a little picture, a little telling of what David felt. Let's, I have one more picture to show you. This is not at Carlsbad on the beach. Uh, <laughs> this picture I just found as I was looking around, and, and again, if you could look closer at it, it's just stunning, the stars in the sky. And I don't know if you can see it in the photograph, but on the edge of the, the little cliff there, there's a little little dude with his hands like that. You know, it's, it's quite beautiful. This is God's creation. How can you look at that and not say, who made it? That's what David's talking about. Joseph Addison, a hymn writer, back in 1712, wrote a hymn called The Spacious Firmament on High. He understood, I think, what David understood about the universe. He wrote, What though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Well, how do people respond to all this? Well, they don't respond in a way that, for us, should seem obvious. 
There is a belief, centuries, really thousands of years old, that the objects in heaven are more than created things. Astrology, for example, is a holdover from those ancient times that taught stars and planets and the sun and were heavenly beings, that is, they were gods who had influence over individual lives of humans and of nations. And uh, in addition, and I was a little surprised by this, you don't have to look very far in our modern world to find people who worship the sun. It still goes on. In Deuteronomy, God warns the Israelites that they are not to worship created things. The Israelites were God's people, and God had given over to the other peoples to sin and to the worship of created things. In Deuteronomy 4.19, God warns the Israelites not to worship what the peoples around them worship. He says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. I can imagine Paul, while in Corinth, right, Corinth writing the letter to the Romans. I can imagine him even meditating or thinking about Psalm 19 as he's beginning to write the letter. And I believe he was thinking about Psalm 19 when he wrote this in Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lust and their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's how people respond too often to the creation. And Paul certainly had Psalm 19 in mind when he quotes Psalm 19.4 in Romans 10. Speaking about why some Jews rejected the gospel, Paul applies Psalm 19.4 to the witness of the gospel. In Romans 10, 16 through 18, he says, But they have not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And Paul quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of this world, of the world. So Paul, or uh, David, has spoken about creation now. He makes that abrupt transition to speaking about the law of the Lord in verses 7 through 11. Back to Paul. He spends a good deal of time dealing, uh, dealing with the Jewish believers in Romans, in the Roman church, who were relying on the law for their righteousness. He says quite a bit about it. And in that discussion, Paul says many positive things about the law. I can still imagine Paul writing Romans and reading the last portion of Psalm 19 and then writing about the law. And he makes several points about the law and several verses which we won't display here. But he says that the law is part of the blessings God gave to the Jews. He says that in Romans 9. In Romans 2, he said that the Jews knew what God's will was and were able to approve what is excellent because they knew it. They knew the law. 
In Romans 3, Paul says, the law is a witness of the righteousness of God. And in Romans 7, he, uh, he says it's because of the law that he knew sin. And then in Romans seven twelve, he says this, the law is holy. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says the law is good. He talks about goodness of the law and so does David. In verses 7 through 11, David sees the goodness of the law. He sees that God has provided a way to know him and by how he wants his people to live. David sees the value of the law for the benefits it provides. Francis Schaeffer famously asked, how should we then live? David's answer would have been likely by the law of the Lord, for it is perfect. We've been, uh, in the last several Psalms, there seems to have been a theme in it about how we can't measure up to the law. We can't have our own righteousness. We can't uh, be the kind of people that, that God would say, okay, you're saved because of what you do. We've talked a lot about that in the last several Psalms. The law cannot provide salvation or righteousness. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Only Christ can provide salvation and righteousness because he lived his life on this planet by the law and he lived it perfectly. In Psalm 19, 7 through 9, this is how David sees the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony, testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In verses 1 through 6, David used one word for God, and that was the word El, which is a very common word for God in, uh, in the ancient Near East. And that word means mighty one which is appropriate, given that David was talking about the creation. In verses 7 through 11, David uses another name for God. He uses it seven times, and he uses it six times in these three verses we just read. And that word is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal and covenantal name for God. The law of God is not some abstract expression of ritual and practice. It is in the commandments that, that God reveals himself personally. Special revelation. His character and his righteousness are revealed there. For David, the law of the Lord shows him who God is. And like God, the law is good. We've talked before about the Hebrew poetic technique of parallelism. The technique is where the author says something and then he says it again in different words to emphasize the point he's making. Verses 7 through 9 contain six parallel statements, two in each verse. And each statement contains three elements that are likewise parallel. There's a name for the law, a description for the law, and a benefit of the law. I want to go through those. The first one is the law of the Lord, and he describes it as perfect, meaning without fault. And he says it revives the soul, turning back from failure to restore. David says that the law is actually a way for a person to turn back after they've sinned, a way for them to come back to the Lord, to be restored by the law, by the law. Then he calls it the testimony of the Lord. He calls that sure, meaning reliable, making wise the simple, which talks about growing in moral wisdom. Then the precepts of the Lord. They're right, meaning morally straight, 
and they rejoice the heart. There's gladness in making the right moral choices, even when the choices may be hard to make. Then that's the commandment of the Lord, which means pure or faultless, and it's enlightening to the eyes. The law gives sight to moral living. We can look at the law, we can read the law, we can see what God desires for human beings and know what he wants from us, and he know the moral choices we should make. And then there's the fear of the Lord. They are clean, David says, meaning ethically correct, and they endure forever. And it's not just that the law endures forever, but there's strength in enduring and making the right moral choices. And finally, there's the rules of the Lord. David calls them true, meaning trustworthy or faithful. And the benefit is that they're righteous altogether, to be wholly right in moral choices. And then David talks about the value of the law, of the law. If you, or if you will, the word of God. And for David, it's wonderful. And in addition to these benefits, he speaks of the value. Verse, or Psalm 19, 10 through 11. More to be desired than, they, than, uh, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David sees two values to the precepts of the Lord. First, in verse 10, is they're really good. They're more valuable than gold, which is the most valuable commodity in the ancient Near East. And they're sweeter than honey, the sweetest substance known in the ancient Near East. The testimony of the Lord held more value to David than anything he could think of. And second, David sees value in the rules of the Lord in that he's warned by them and that there's great reward in keeping them. To be warned is to be saved from making a poor choice. That is to be warned away from sin and the consequences that go with the sin. And they also give reward. But note here that the reward is not because David keeps the law. The reward is in keeping the law. The upright are blessed in their uprightness. And then David prays. David's high view of the law presents a problem. Paul said that many good things about the law in Romans, as we talked about earlier, but that's not the end of it. With all the good of the law, it is unable to keep a person righteous. When Paul said in Romans 2 that the law enabled those who tried to follow it to know God's will and approve of it, he also said, Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. When Paul said positively that because of the law he knew what sin was in Romans 7, in verses 10 and 11 in Romans 7, he says, The very commandment that promised, life, that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And while Paul said that the law is good and righteous, he also said in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the conclusion of the law. He's the, the pinnacle of the law. He's what the law points to. And it's through Christ that we get righteousness, not through the law. We know this. We know that we cannot ever hope to become righteous through keeping the law. We know that it takes faith in Christ, who did live perfectly under the law, and who died and was resurrected so that we might be saved. So how does David become so effusive about the law of the Lord? Does he not know that even with all its benefits... The law he can, of the law, he cannot keep the testimony of the Lord? Actually, he does know that. Verses 12 through 14. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knows that he can't keep from sinning. He recognizes that he and anyone can know all their errors. He knows that he's subject to presumptuous sins. He knows that he cannot even keep his mouth pure and his heart and thoughts without sin. David mentions hidden faults, and these aren't faults that are sins that one's trying to hide from God. These are sins that a person is not aware of. Sins that you do not know you have committed. Sins sins like self-righteousness or pride or gossip. We can become so used to these things that we don't realize that we're sinning. While hidden sins had provision for for, uh, forgiveness in the law, presumptuous sins did not have provision for forgiveness in the law. Those sins are like adultery and murder. Oh, wait, David committed both of those. Both of those which God forgave David for, and he forgave David for those sins apart from the law. David even acknowledges that he can sin by simply speaking or thinking thoughts, which he calls meditations. As good as the law is, and as reviving and restoring as it is, and as much as it can warn a person from committing sin, it cannot keep one from committing sin. So David calls on God. He calls on God to declare him innocent from the sins he does not know he committed. He also calls on God to keep him from the big sins, the presumptuous sins that under the law cannot be forgiven. We've already said that David committed adultery and murder. David knows that only God can keep him or make him blameless. God does that by forgiving. And David calls on God to keep his words and his thoughts acceptable to God. David calls on God to keep him right. David realized that it is only God, his rock, and his redeemer that can keep him from sin. While David did not know the name of Jesus, he knew that only God can make him righteous. He believed God could do that. This is the same kind of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Romans three twenty one through 26. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I earlier suggested that Psalm 19 had two parts. One was God revealing himself in the heavens, and the second part was God revealing himself personally through the law. But I think I agree with Theodore Sear, the fellow we met earlier, Uh, when he said this. The psalm instructs us first on creation and providence, in the middle, on the law, and finally, on grace. A couple things to consider. First, 
God does reveal himself in creation. I'm fascinated by creatures in the ocean that keep getting discovered. Creatures that God had made from the foundation of the world, and we're just now figuring out, oh, look at that. That's new. I'm amazed by that. Take time to learn of God from his creation. Take time to sit and watch the sunset. My wife, uh, in the mornings, uh, when, there's, when it's not just clouds all over the place, we can look out our back window and see the sunset or the sunrise come up. She loves doing that. She always remarks on how beautiful it is. Take time to look. Take time one night when the clouds aren't around to look up at the stars. There's plenty of places around here that you can go to where there aren't many city lights and you can see the stars and all their brilliance. There's not many of those places in Southern California, so it's a treat. But take time. Take time to consider his greatness and his might and his power through what he's made. And then remember that, as Paul said in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is Christ who is the conclusion of the law. We rejoice not that we can keep the requirements of the law, even sometimes, but we rejoice that Christ is our righteousness, and he gives you and me the power to follow him. Like David, call on God to give you the power to keep from sinning and the power to follow him. And uh, I can guarantee you that's a prayer that God will answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the creation. And thank you for the law. Thank you for your word, because it does reveal who you are, and it does reveal who you want us to be, and it does reveal how we can be who you want us to be. And how we can be who you want us to be is, of course, through Jesus Christ. He saves us. He's the author and the perfecter of our salvation. He's the one who builds us and disciplines us and carries us to the character that uh, you want to have in us. Thank you for that. May we look at the creation. May we study the creation. May we look at the beauty of what you've created and rejoice and worship you for that. And may, Father, we worship and rejoice in you for showing yourself to us through Jesus Christ and giving us the salvation and the forgiveness because we can't keep the law on our own through Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.